Hello, everyone. This is Premier Chess CEO, National Master Evan Rabin, and I'm very excited to be here on episode 226 of the Premier Chess podcast, where every week we interview great chess professionals, business coaches, attorneys, other people who have found their passion in whatever it is uh, that they do. Uh, but this week we have a very special guest, Grandmaster Mickey Adams, who is a seven-time, I believe, uh, British champion. And uh, at his peak, he was 2761 uh, FIDE, rated fourth in the world. And he's also been a several time uh, world championship uh, candidate. Uh, so he's been uh, playing for you know quite some time at the uh, elite level, uh, remains uh, you know very active. And uh, Mickey, it's my pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, my, my pleasure. So, um, First thing I, I wanted to actually ask you was, uh, how did you first get the, the nickname, Mickey? Um, well, it was actually uh, when Michael Wilder was playing chess, uh, another American player. Uh, and at that time, it used to be Mike, but Mike Wilder became Mike. So I think then people needed another another name for me. And Julian Hodgson always used to call me Mix anyway, uh, mm. one of my best friends. So... Yeah, it kind of stuck after a while, and people just started calling me Mickey, even though uh, he, by that time, had long retired and gone off to become a lawyer. So I think that was actually where it came from, because I, I used to be Mike when I was a bit younger for a lot of people. Interesting. So, for me, yeah, it's not a big deal, actually, either way, what people call me, or even Michael is also okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, M Michael Wider. I, I heard the name before. I think I'm a, a little young to, you know, have met him. I think he, I gave up serious ch tournament chess a while ago, but I think from Michael Road and many of the other like top uh, American players, I've uh, you know heard, heard his name over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, a very good player, and he came over and played quite a lot of events in the uh, UK at one time. Uh, Watson Foley Williams and, and other events, and very nice guy, really. Yeah. Top bloke. So it was, uh, the, yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was how it uh, came about, I think. Interesting. And uh, another, like, you know, I, I was just looking at your Wikipedia, as I always do, uh, you know, for, for these episodes as a place to, you know, start and, and do a little bit of research. And uh, I thought it was kind of cool, actually, that your your wife, Tara McGowan, is uh, an actress. Um, have you, uh, you know, just, out of curiosity, have you ever uh, like seen any sort of relationship of like chess and act acting? You know how how is that dynamic sort of uh, uh, you know, played a role in in your life together? Not really, I don't think. Uh, I'm not sure there are many chess players who would be much good in the acting world. I think the acting world is quite tough because you kind of have this audition process, and it's often quite random and they're looking for a particular thing and you may not fulfill uh that particular role and there's not much you can do about it chess i think is well i guess the good and bad thing about chess is that uh, you kind of get what you des you deserve and if you play well then you tend to get a re good result i think that's one of the the tougher things about uh, acting that uh, you find that you just don't know whether or you know roles can just be rewritten or people can just get omitted from movies or whatever it's added away it's uh, just lots of random things like that which i think for most chess players that would be very very difficult to deal with i don't think i would like that too much but yeah we're a slightly unusual couple when people ask what we do then uh yeah <laughs> kind of like a surprised uh, yeah by everything 
Well, you know, I, find, I always find it interesting who comes together. Um, I actually uh, recently got married two weeks ago, uh, McKee, to uh, international tax accountant, uh, Stacy, And, uh, you know, it, it, it's very different. I mean, okay, we're, I guess, in theory, both analytical, you know, me being a chess master and her being, you know, an international tax accountant. But, uh, you know, it's interesting how the uh, worlds collide. Yeah, congratulations. Thank good. you. <laughs> so um yeah and um you know i guess given uh you being a, a chess player and uh, your wife being uh, an actress uh i thought it was sort of natural to see uh you know your, your your thoughts on the great queen's gambit you know that kind of uh influenced all of us yeah i mean i actually read the book a very long time ago when i was very young because i was just interested oh, wow. in chess and sort of library and uh uh, I sort of read. I haven't read it since, but I, I remember liking it at the time. I have read uh, some of his other books. Uh, uh, it also got made into movies. He's actually a very good uh, writer. But I didn't see the Queen's Gambit for a while. We didn't have Netflix at that time, and then it, it had already got this huge reputation as a show that that was really good. So I kind of wondered whether I saw it. When I saw it, I would kind of be a bit disappointed. But no, I thought it really was. A, excellently uh, done I mean obviously there were a few details that weren't quite correct but uh, in general uh, I thought it was pretty good but they had a very good uh, book to make it into a into a kind of TV series like that so I don't know I think it would be quite tough if they do go back to a second season I'm not quite sure if that is the plan or not actually I seem to have read conflicting things about whether they're going to uh, to uh, have a follow-up or not I think it'll be quite difficult without the, uh, and particularly as it seemed to come to a bit of a natural conclusion in any case, the, uh, the thing. And it always very difficult when he does something it's that good to do a second thing to, to match up to it, um, unless you've got a really clever idea. Yeah, well, it's definitely uh, a little bit of a you know crazy situation with the uh, you know Nona and you know all of that. And uh, I just have to say, you know, look, I'll I'll. I'll PR is is good PR, you know, for 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 chess. Um, you know, so many people have done you know great work. Uh, you know, my good friend and mentor Bruce Pandolfini, who's been on the podcast, of course, was an advisor both to the book and uh, the the film. And uh, he, he actually came on the podcast shortly after uh, Queen's Gambit uh, actually was just you know rising through the media. Yeah. And uh, he, you know, I. I didn't actually know at the time that he also advised the book. Actually, I had no idea. Uh, in fact, but yeah, that's uh, quite interesting. Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, he's been obviously very integral uh, in, in kind of all uh, you know ch chess PR. So, um, speaking of which, I just you know, I <laughs> I guess I'd be reminiscing if if I didn't ask. Uh, you know. It's, Obviously, a crazy time in in the chess world. Uh, you know, you, you you know why? You know, with uh, with with Hans and and, and Carlson. Um, you know, just to give people a little bit of a backstory, people that might have not heard uh, the news. Uh, we do have a lot of listeners that are chess players, and many that aren't. Um, even though at this point, like it's read the New York Post and <laughs> many <laughs> newspapers, yeah, even, even for people outside of the chess world, which yeah, it's been just... in most of the main papers over here as well, not only uh, <laughs> fact, to some extent. What's funny about the story is it's been almost as much in the mainstream press stuff about it as it is in the chess press. Mm. 
perhaps because uh, yeah, perhaps because the no one really seems to have much uh, information about what's uh, going on within chess, so it's quite hard to write about it. Um, so before you continue, I just want to give people a little bit of a backstory, basically. Uh, so a few weeks ago in the Singfeld Cup, uh, one of a very high level tournament in St. Louis, uh, it was a round robin uh, tournament and Magnus Carlsen, the world champion, uh, lost uh, to uh, Hans Niemann, a young American player who's 19, but uh, quickly has become uh, you know, a top tier grandmaster. And uh, basically, Magnus lost uh, the first of 53 uh, games. <laughs> uh, actually, yeah, 53 uh, games uh, undefeated uh, in, in classical time control and all of a sudden lost Hans. And uh, basically, without uh, directly accusing him of cheating, he uh, basically left uh, the next day and uh, withdrew from the tournament, uh, which is not generally kosher, uh, you know, in round-robin events. And uh, something that's almost unheard of. I think that's exactly what Kasparov, uh, you know, actually said uh, about it. And then, uh, yeah, people he was pretty much not heard from. And then uh, a few days ago now, uh, he, in this uh, bear uh, tournament online, uh, on day two, the first round, he was playing Hans and uh, basically resigned after uh, one move, <laughs> uh, obviously in protest. So, um, yeah, curious as to your, uh, you know, thoughts about the ridiculous situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's very hard to say much about the situation, really, to some extent, because no one really understands why this is is happening uh, and what the actual problem is. I mean, perhaps I can speak a bit more generally uh, and people seem to comment on the situation differently there, for instance Levon Aroni and in St Louis he seemed to take one position I think yesterday he was commenting and he said oh I know I've got some new information and I've changed my position but most people are just not getting this information uh, to kind of understand what's going on at all or what uh, the problem is but I mean perhaps if I can speak a bit more generally about cheating as someone who's been around quite a long time because this is not a new problem players being accused of cheating uh and in some cases i think people just becoming uh, too powered i mean in over the board chess cheating is very 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 rare and mm -hmm. one of the things that chess absolutely needs to get out there which is not being mentioned in some of these general articles in a lot of the general articles you read, there's the impression that over-the-board cheating is quite a common thing, that it's easy to do, mm. lots of techniques. Well, this just isn't true. Uh, I don't think anyone's ever cheated against me in over-the-board chess. And it's very, very rare. And if you do do it, you're very likely to quickly come under suspicion, which for mm. me is already, you haven't really succeeded because people, even if they can't immediately prove it, have caught on to it. Um, but unfortunately, when you have accusations, it leads to a very, very poisonous atmosphere. Um, I mean, I remember in the tournament in San Luis, there were sort of accusations flying around at that tournament, which to me were completely, you know, didn't have any substance to them, which I think was the general view going forward. 
I mean, there were some participants who were kind of unsure at the time, who subsequently have now, I think, come round that viewpoint. Um, and this sort of continued, I think this very much poisoned uh, future relations, led to a lot of problems. And then we had the Topolov-Kramnik match. Uh, again, a very kind of poisonous atmosphere, lots of accusations being thrown around. So we're certainly in a, a kind of rather bad place at the moment, because when you have accusations like this, uh, there doesn't seem to be well, no one really knows what the situation is. And we also now have the situation with online chess, which was not a big thing at that time. Obviously, now there's a lot more uh, serious online chess going on. Um, but the situation to me in online chess doesn't seem very satisfactory. Um, if we speak only about top players, uh, it seems to be commonly said that there are a lot of top players who are cheating online. Um, I have no idea. I mean, I, mm. I don't really, when this is discussed, I'm very skeptical about uh, the kind of claims that some of my colleagues make about lots of people doing this. I don't doubt that there are some people who have done it, and particularly when you're talking about games that aren't parts of official tournaments, and there obviously is this big list that uh, online websites have. But we seem to have a very funny situation that the websites keep this information private, but it's not exactly completely private because they seem to offer to share it with some people. I mean, I mentioned Levon Roy and he said, well, someone from a website had given him some new information. Well, but is this information private or is it public? Well, it's not being put out publicly, but then should it be shared with anyone? And there are some players who have suffered from this, particularly because their names have come out into the open. Whereas there are, I guess, a lot of players who whose names are on the list who haven't come out in the open. And mm. their names are often coming out because other players are naming them, which again is something that shouldn't doesn't seem the correct process if if they're going to be named, it should be done by the by the online uh, server in, in the kind of uh, in a consistent way. So there's sort of lots of problems with how it's dealt with. I mean, I'm, although I don't think there's a lot of cheating going on, I'm not, I'm pretty firm on anyone who does get caught cheating, and I'm not, I think that there should be pretty strict punishments. I think there should be perhaps a lot more financial punishments for people who are mm. caught cheating, because very often the motive is financial. I mean, it's an over-the-board chess as well. Um, mm. And because it's quite hard to ban people for very long periods of time, uh, partly because chess is like an associate member of the IOC and then you have doping controls and things are set up like that. But it is perfectly possible to give a, bat, a kind of fine and if the fine isn't paid, then they're not going to play a game, which uh, uh, solves the problem. I think this could also be something in online chess that perhaps should be considered as an additional deterrent uh, because it's not really easy to see how this problem could be solved. I mean, I can't really comment much on the ongoing thing, but clearly one of the problems is that when Magnus uh, withdrew uh, from the tournament, this had quite a big effect on other players. I mean, one of them is Neiman, which I guess he doesn't care about too much, but I mean, obviously it was beneficial for some other players and that will affect everyone in the tournament 
Uh, I think Nepomniachtchi had lost against Magnus, so that was wiped out. So that benefited him and hindered the other players. And obviously, in this online tournament, by defaulting, yeah, by not playing the game, uh, Magnus is, I mean, I guess the they're actually playing the final rounds of the qualification pretty much as we're doing this interview, so I don't know what the uh, final outcome of that will be. But it's obviously given Neiman considerable more chance of uh, qualifying. I mean, unless he won this game anyway, which as Magnus has been in great form in the other games, would certainly not have been easy. Uh, you know, that's going to work to his advantage in terms of qualification, which is quite competitive and may work for against the other players. So, you know, the, the actions that he's taken obviously do have consequences for quite a lot of other players. Um, as well as himself. So that's another problem. And, you know, in general, there isn't, neither of the players are, uh, you know, there's just no, no one's really saying very much or taking control of the situation. And the statements that have come out have been pretty minimal quite late. And as you were sort of mentioning, it's been in the mainstream media and this is almost filling a news vacuum. So I think, uh, the chess world needs to get its act together and try and sort this out uh, and try and move forward. But there's obviously some things that I'm not aware of, that other people are, so I don't think I can really go into huge detail uh, any more than that. Well, that, that's very fair, Mickey. And uh, yeah, I didn't actually want this to be like the main topic of conversation. Uh, I, was, I want to talk about, you know, your, your career in books and, uh, you know, every, everything else. Uh, but just, uh, you know, look, it's obviously top of mind for, you know, no, ev everyone. And, uh, you know, to get, uh, you know, a top player like yourself, uh, you know, input, uh, you know, is, is definitely important. And, uh you know, I think, uh, you know, yeah, definitely a lot of good ideas. I was actually talking the other day with Grandmaster Max Delugi, uh, who's been on the podcast before and actually has uh, trained hands, uh, you know, at one point. And, uh, you know, of course, I couldn't help ask him when I when I saw him the other day, uh, you know, um, you know, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on this mess? You know, and, uh, you know, one of the first few things he said is like, look, it's a mess. I, I know almost for sure that Hans, you know, likely didn't cheat. Uh, but, uh, you know, I guess probably has some points. And uh, this was, yeah, actually before uh, the whole resigning uh, situation. Uh, it, was, it was the day before uh, or maybe two days before. Um, but, uh, you know, like, like you said, all, 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 all PR is, is good chess PR. Uh, well, you know, no, no, I, I, I don't, I mean, this isn't good PR for chess, definitely not. But uh, I do think that the only thing positive that can come out of this, I think, is that we will get more clarity, more openness and a better procedure. And we won't sort of continue going as we are because... It's clear the way things are at the moment isn't isn't working uh, in terms of this kind of secrecy, people being banned and no one knowing what's going on. And it's clearly leading to this kind of you know, unpleasant atmosphere uh, and lots of suspicion. So I think, you know, this is an opportunity. You know, it couldn't have a bigger uh, reach in, in, in the chess world with, with Magnus Carlsen being involved. So, you know, I think I think people are going to have to come up with solutions as well as uh, as well as this situation getting resolved so that we're not back here, here in, in the future. I think that's important. Um, 
but yeah, okay. As you say, you probably don't want to spend the whole podcast. Yeah. <laughs> a few weeks ago, it probably wouldn't have been mentioned at all. So it's one of those no, things that is very much absolutely. off the moment. You know, it, 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 it's it's good timing, and uh, yeah, just just to you know clarify, like you know, for for a second, I guess you know, I I wouldn't say it's uh, you know necessarily like good PR. I just think you know anything that gets people more interested in the chess world uh, in general, I think is you know decent. You know, um, I'll give an example. The other night, on uh, I, I was hosting a, a Shabbat dinner, and uh, one of my friends there who never asked me a single question about chess before was like, "Oh, what's going on with this like Magnus Hans thing?" I was like, "What? You know about it? <laughs> you know?" Uh, so I. You know, it, 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 it's spreading, uh, you know, just out there, which, okay, I think well, is a good thing for us all. But, I understand uh, that, but my concern is that the impression given by this particular incident is that there in the mainstream media is that there is a lot of cheating going on in chess, which simply isn't the case. Right. And you want it to be sort of taken as something like, I don't know, perhaps doping in athletics or cycling where, you know, people have that the impression that it's a huge problem you know in chess it, it isn't a huge problem uh and i don't think i think when chess players talk it up with a big problem they, they hurt themselves also uh you know it, it's not a big thing most chess players are completely honest and wouldn't think about doing it uh you know there, there are many honest players playing honest games out there and it, it's important to get the narrative of the scale of the problem and that's where which i think is what i think is currently being missed out and i don't uh, i don't think it's good if people come in the first thing they hear about chess is that there's a, a big cheating issue when that isn't really the the overall perspective yeah no i i think that's more than fair and you know look there is definitely some cheating in chess um you know actually grandmaster joel benjamin and, and harold scott uh who's been on the podcast a few months ago they uh actually in their latest book, uh, Winning the World Open, they do actually have, you know, even a chapter, uh, you know, up specifically about chess cheating. Um, but uh, yes, of course, it's uh, especially over the board, uh, not yeah. so common. And, uh, you know, yeah, no, in the grand scheme, and, and, and even online, by the way, you know, I, I know a lot of people who didn't want to play any online tournaments over the last couple of years. Uh, especially when over the board tournaments didn't exist uh, for the most part. Um, but I actually won prizes for myself, for instance, in several events uh, online and, you know, had no issues. You know, they did all the fair play analysis before they gave out the prizes and, uh, you know, think things were pretty good. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's not. Uh, yeah, I heard that podcast. I think most of the, the attempts that were detailed in that book were quite basic and the, the people quickly came under suspicion they were not uh, particularly sophisticated attempts um so yeah i mean it uh, it was perhaps a bit less of a of a problem that there but no i mean even online obviously online there is a lot more cheating than over the board but still there are very many you know online games which are played completely honestly by both by both sides and you know really what's the point even if we you know discount the moral and reputational damage if you're caught cheating you know what's really the point to just enter the computer's moves most people want to play chess themselves and see how uh, and see how they perform uh so and you know obviously 
a lot of people are caught as well. You know, they they do have quite good anti-cheating uh, software, which uh, does pick up a lot of uh, things. Uh, and you know, those methods I'm sure will be refined all the time, and will will continue to uh, to get better. Yeah, well, it's great that uh, you know people like Kenneth Regan are you know doing a great job at uh, detecting uh, cheating and uh, you know. It, anyway, let let let's let's talk about uh, non-cheaters. Sure. <laughs> so, um, so uh, so believe it or not, Michael, uh, Mickey, uh, either, <laughs> either uh, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to you know actually get you on uh, the podcast is uh, for quite some time I've been uh, looking at a lot of your games. Uh, so uh, Grandmaster Bill Lombardi, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, once uh, told me informally, I never actually formally learned with him, but uh, growing up in New York, I saw him all the time at the Marshall, Washington Square Park. You know, you name it, all, all the New York chess sites. Uh, and uh, basically, it was very late one night uh, at the chess forum uh, in uh, Thompson Street, uh, probably around like literally 2 a.m. And uh, he was just like, Evan, why are you, you know, you're, you're learning all these openings. You know, you're, you're learning some end games. Uh, but you need to look at full games. So you could transition uh, between the opening to the middle game and the middle game to the end game, ending. Uh, at the time, I was an expert, you know, a little, uh, a little bit below master. And he basically gave me a piece of advice. He said, I want you to find one top player. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, world champion, but someone, you know, at the elite level uh, that somewhat matches your style and go over all of their games. So, uh, I went home that night and uh, happened to uh, see a copy of your book, uh, Michael Adam, Adam, Development of a Master, uh, which my dad bought me at some point at a used bookstore. And uh, I was like, oh, he, he plays E4. He plays like a somewhat similar repertoire. And uh, I'm going to go over all the games in the book uh, and then more. So uh, I did. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> uh, have been uh, somewhat actually following your, your, your games here and there, uh, you know, since. And uh, actually kind of realized that, uh, you know, for the most part, you play E4. Uh, and often you'll you know, prevent counterplay. And uh, a little bit later uh, into the game around, let's say, move 18 to, to 20, you know, start some uh, attacking chances. Uh, and many of the games, uh, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, they'll have a slightly better position out of the opening, uh, you know, kind of just continue uh, improving your, your your pieces. And then, uh, you know, at some point, uh, you know, go for like a tactical blow. Not always, of course, but uh, this is, uh, you know, maybe somewhat of a theme that, uh, you know, I saw. And uh, I was curious, uh, you know, how accurate you, you think that might be uh, as a, sort of a loose description. Yeah, well, of course, it is your best games in the book where things go more smoothly than others. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, that's sort of very uh, old school advice. So I guess uh, maybe they say nothing good happens after 2 a.m., but uh, maybe chess advice can be good after 2 a.m. But yeah, that would have been sort of the kind of advice that I got when I was growing up from older players to, to study to study games collections very much. That would be sort of something that people would look at more than spend a lot of time on openings. Uh, 
I mean, that was pre-chess space, of course. So I think before you had chess databases and engines, people were a bit less uh, obsessed with the opening, or I mean, not obsessed is not the right word, but uh, the, the opening was less of a, of a focus because you were often on your own in the opening anyway. Uh, you wouldn't really have that much information about your opponents, you'd read your books or, or whatever. But a lot of lines just wouldn't be in a book. It was stuff that you got over the board. Um, so I think looking at games collections was quite useful for me when I was uh, when I was growing up. And uh, so I think it is quite good advice. Um, yeah, I don't know whether it really mattered which player you study, as long as I think you, I think as long as you find the book interesting and you make a connection with the book, and I guess that. It helps you have a balance, and you find the and you find the annotations uh, interesting. I mean, normally when I annotate, I think for that book, I try to not have too many really long variations. Of course, you have some variations, but also to have quite a lot of uh, words in the annotations to to write some general educational comments. I think that yeah. that can be quite useful sometimes when you're if you have a book that the general comments can sometimes. Sometimes you can see something, a general comment, or even something someone says to you, uh, a chess player, or you hear them say, and it, it really strikes a chord. I think that's on occasions been quite useful for me. Um, so I think that's uh, that's an interesting idea. Um, yeah, I mean, in general, I quite like to control the game and not to allow too much counterplay. You're certainly correct in that respect. Um, and to uh, yeah, I think that's something that I particularly like in chess to um, to not to go into uh, into murky stuff if you can avoid it. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I think a lot of what you said was pretty fair. Yeah, in terms of my part. Yeah, interesting. And uh, you know, and uh, working with Grandmaster Udasan actually, uh, you know, my coach, uh, we're actually writing a book together. Uh, now, um, I did happen to, out of curiosity, quickly look at your uh, about three games that you played against him uh, in, in tournament chess uh, this morning, uh, actually, uh, from quite a while ago. But uh, yeah, there's one thing he's like drilled into me, uh, you know, it's just not preventing, you know, avoiding complications for no reason, you know, in yeah. a better position, <laughs> which... Uh, you know, at the time, I did way too much of uh, when I first started working with him. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah, so, well, of course, he's quite a, a very strong uh, attacking player, certainly when he was playing. Uh, uh, so I played quite a lot with him when I was fairly uh, fairly young or just, you know, up and coming. Uh, so, yeah, but he was very, very strong attacker at that time. Yeah, particularly with White, very, very strong against the Sicilian. Very impressive attacker. Yeah, and it's great to uh, you know much later on just kind of uh, you know pull these games and uh, you know find, find find their excitement you know so um, and and and, it, and it's interesting because when I first started working with Udathan, I was playing uh, like the close Sicilian, uh, for instance, I was uh, around an eighteen hundred player and uh, you know close Sicilian trying to avoid all these main lines and. Uh, Nowadays, they'll mostly play like Bishop D3 against the Sicilian, you know, to like avoid everything. 
Uh, and he was telling me, oh, you got to play like the open Sicilian, you know, and I was like, no, I'm, what are you talking about? Like, look at what you do. He's like, Evan, look at my games from 1990. I'm retired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, a question. And I did. And I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> a whole nother animal. Yeah, it's a question of energy, your opening somehow. The openings you have when you're young, you have a lot of energy. Uh, it's a bit uh, different uh, calculation, but, you know, when you get older, then maybe uh, you don't want to play so so much uh, sharp lines. But it's very important, I think, to play structures. And, you know, some openings can take you to a, a certain level, but then you have to at least kind of get experience of mm. these structures. Uh, and he's always, people often some say to me, Oh, you're very limited repertoire. Well, no, but I all but I tried all different openings at one time in my life. And I think that's quite important to try different structures. And even if you don't like them, then you sort of understand why you don't like them. Uh if you if you kind of stick to a kind of very narrow repertoire too early, uh that's uh, that's definitely not a good thing. And you know, things like open Sicilians, they may give you a lot of things, you may learn a lot of things about attacking that applies to other other openings uh that you're not positions with opposite castling and things like that that uh, turn out to be important in lots of other opening systems uh so it's not only the you know playing a different line it's it's picking up general experience that makes you a more rounded player because if you play close Sicilian then it's just a it's always it's always a slightly similar type of position with being cheddar in your bishop or whatever so it's not a, a bad system at all, but uh, if you only play that, then that's that's a bit restrictive in terms of learning. Yeah, well, I do think opening repertoire, of course, is uh, important. People have you know different beliefs on it. Uh, your compatriot, for instance, Keith Arkell, who's been on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, someone like him says, you know, you don't need to look at openings whatsoever, you know, almost. Uh, I mean, to be fair, I also <laughs> all the mad on it a little bit saying, look, you're, you're a grandmaster, whether you think you, <laughs> you know, you might not be as theoretical as, you know, some of the, uh, you know, other grandmasters around. But uh, of course, like, you know, you know, the Carol Khan quite well, you know, <laughs> nowadays uh, compared to, you know, 90 percent of players. <laughs> he he uh, has a definite plan and he, you know, he knows his systems. He plays the same systems quite a lot. But I'm sure that even Keith, you know, he, when he was younger, he would have tried different things more and then honed it down. And I think he did also, I actually heard that podcast, I think he was saying, you know, when he plays against stronger opposition, sometimes then he's not so happy because he's, you know, just concerned he would get maybe a bad position from the opening. It's going to be a bit of a miserable game. And of course, that's what happens if you, when he's playing against weaker players, it's not such a big problem for him to... Uh, you know, to overcome opening problems or to just set up a solid position. So there's always a price to pay for whatever you do. And of course, if you are as good an endgame player as Keith, that does mean that maybe you don't have to prioritize <laughs> the opening so much, which not everyone is. So, you know, there, there are always different factors to uh, mm -hmm. consider. And, and some people just wouldn't find that style much fun also. You know, some people, you know, play chess also to enjoy it and... Uh, Sure. Might enjoy more a, a kind of a more exciting game, even if they got a worse result than playing a very technical game. So there's lots of different ways you can look at it, of course. Sure. Well, I'll definitely, uh, of course, recommend everyone to look at his book, Arkel Dengen Endings, yeah. um, as well as the new book, uh, 
of Jacob Bogard, who also recently on a podcast, which is, uh, I think, 900 pages long of endings. <laughs> so there, there's a lot there. Uh, but um, yeah, sorry. If gonna, I, yeah. Sorry, I should also yeah. just say, I mean, I learned a huge amount playing with both uh, Keith and Mark Hebden, who, who you know, were playing all the weekend tournaments when I was younger. Uh, and I was playing them from quite an early age. And, uh, you know, that was very beneficial to my development as a player both the games I played with them and also just talking to them. They're very nice guys and they were very generous to me in terms of just uh, hanging out and discussing things. And uh, uh, just, I learned a lot about chess that way or watching them analyze their games afterwards. So that was, uh, that was very, uh, very useful for me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do see uh, definitely uh, a lot of value, uh, you know, in that and, uh, you know, of course, be well-rounded, right? You need to do, uh, you know, all parts of the game, which uh, goes back to, uh, you know, Lombardi's suggestion about uh, looking at full games, right? So you can understand uh, the transition, uh, right, from the opening to the middle game and uh, the middle game to, to the end game. Uh, so speaking of you and Arkell and uh, your other uh, compatriots, uh, you know, th- this past summer, you, uh, you know, won the World Senior uh, Team Championships. Uh, and then uh, also did, you know, fairly well in the Olympiad. But, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, to those, uh, you know, people that are, you know, a little bit more experienced, uh, you know, how have you, uh, you know, kind of kept, uh, you know, busy and active, uh, you know, against a lot of those, uh, you know, youth, youth players? And, uh, you know, how have you, uh, you know, kind of stayed, uh, you know, so, so competitive and, uh, you know, win- winning, uh, you know, some of these top events? Well, I think it's just a question of it really gets harder as you get older. I don't think it's impossible. <laughs> yes. It's just not as easy. Uh, and, you you know, you have to work at it a bit more. And obviously you encounter a lot of very strong young players and that uh, uh, can be tough sometimes. Uh, but I think you can continue to play quite well but you need to find the motivation to uh, organize yourself in your own way I think it's different for every uh, player um, exactly how you need to carry on working on your game but I don't think it's inevitable that you're going to decline or that you're going to decline really quickly if you're motivated to uh, keep on playing you can maintain a decent level. Uh, so that's really what I've uh, tried to do. I mean, I didn't really have big expectations that I would carry on playing so successfully for such a long time, even when I was sort of in my late 30s. I was like, well, I don't really know how things will go from here. And I was really just going, well, I'll keep on playing, you know, the next year, 18 months and see where that gets me. And if, you know, 18 months later, things were still going well, I think, well, okay, I'll carry on for another 18 months. So I think you have to be sort of realistic. It's not, it's far from inevitable that you can continue to play well. And I think you do need to be willing to uh, keep up with current trends to some extent in terms of uh, new openings, new ideas, new players, uh, maybe new training methods. Um, there's a, I mean, there's never been as, as much good chess information out there as there is at the moment, uh, probably in terms of individual training, uh, kind of courses, 
um, DVDs, books. There's a huge number of really, really good books out there at the moment. So, you know, there's a lot of information out there. Of course, you can only take in a, a tiny portion of that as an individual player. But there's plenty of things that you can do, and I think everyone just has to focus. And it's quite hard to give general advice because it obviously depends if someone is a sort of amateur player or a professional player. The difference is just completely different. But I don't think you should think that uh, it's going to be impossible to play well. And I think also try not to get too discouraged. I and mean, if you read chess comments in general, if you see a player who is uh, an older player has a bad result, you will see on social media or whatever, oh, they're finished, they should retire, all this kind of stuff. But younger players do have bad results as well. And no one says anything because they're young players. It's just a bad result. Everyone moves on. But there, there is this sort of, I think there is a bit of a prevailing idea out there sometimes that uh, if older players have a bad result or a setback, that this is some kind of terminal thing. But it's probably not. It's just one tournament where things didn't go well and maybe you just need to pick yourself up and do a little bit more work and uh, carry on if you if you if you want to carry on achieving results, I don't think mm. it's impossible to carry on playing. Uh, I think also at the moment it is a bit difficult because young players are not really being picked up by the racing system uh, very well. A lot of them are still very, very underrated. So obviously if you're playing players like that, that can be a bit dispiriting. That's obviously not so true at my level as their rating, ratings are correcting. There are still a lot of players who, whose ratings haven't caught up with their playing strengths even at the very top level, but that does adjust much more quickly. Of course, they, they play a lot more. And you could see at the Olympiad, that process was still kind of happening. You could see how the young players were gaining 15, 20 points, a lot of them, and it was mainly at the expense of the older players. And that was just, you know, I don't think that was, that was just sort of a natural correction, really, the rating sort of catching up with the way players had uh, improved during lockdown that some of the younger players have improved so i guess you know at a lower level that that can be maybe more of a problem because perhaps the ratings are not correcting uh as much so i would also try not to get too dispirited by that if you're playing very young players and they seem a lot stronger than their rating it could well be that they just are and, and the rating system hasn't caught up um so i would you know try and encourage people to uh, older players to just keep on fighting and uh, Good things may happen if you stick at it. Hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, perseverance, of course, is uh, what every everyone needs, you know, in order to, uh, you know, continue uh, getting better. You know, I I just uh, was at one of our school programs yesterday, and uh, there was a kid who was new to the program, uh, St. John and Paul School in. Uh, Larchmont, New York, and uh, you know, one one of the kids was, uh, you know, basically just saying like, uh, "Oh, and you know, I, I don't want, I don't want to go to tournaments because like I'm, you know, inexperienced, you know, uh, not thinking that uh, you could go to tournaments and get better, you know." Then I actually explained to him how when I was seven, I learned how to move the pieces, and two months after that, played my first tournament. A uh, month after that, went to the nationals and. You know, had a bunch of coaches and never looked back. You know, eventually started a chess company, uh, you know, full time. So um, I, I think, yeah, like being, you know, perseverant and, uh, you know, thinking positive, 
uh, you know, of course, is important, then uh, okay, you could have good results. So, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of strong players, I think, uh, very determined to improve and could often be quite stubborn. And uh, in my experience, people who are like that, they uh, they always had good results at the end, just because they wouldn't let things go and whatever the method they was using whether it was particularly effective or not they just stuck at it and at the end they uh, they became strong players or were able to overcome weaknesses in their game if you're willing to work at it it's nearly always possible it's all achievable and everyone has to start with the first tournament you know it's it's like anything yeah uh, for most players in the world there will always be better players and there will always be worse players and everyone's uh, somewhere on that uh, scale yeah i certainly uh agree with that and uh you know i think you just whatever level you are you know from beginner to you know super grandmaster uh you, you should be actively playing and uh you know that that's the best way you're gonna get better uh you know i always tell people you could read a million and a half chess books uh but not play a lot of tournaments and you're not gonna improve you know i've had uh if some students, uh, you know, take lessons for you know, several years and not want to go to tournament, you know, I think, you know, frankly, it's a waste. You know, you need to, uh, you need to do both to, uh, you know, actually get better uh, and, and, and stay in shape. Um, yeah. So uh, in terms of uh, chess improvement, uh, I know you recently came out with a, a great book, uh, Think Like a Super Grandmaster, which has uh, 40 uh, puzzles, um it uh, it already came out uh and uh it's gonna have another release uh you know on amazon uh soon uh but uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the book and uh why everyone should buy it <laughs> yeah i'm a co-author on the book with uh philip hurtado who uh has a statistical background uh he's about a 2100 player um uh, and it's actually phil's idea um and he was looking for a strong chess player to partner with on the book um so his idea was really to record the thoughts of people uh when they were solving a position so when the position was given to them they would kind of talk uh, their thoughts through and feel included and this was a whole range of strengths i was the strongest player but there were several other grandmasters international masters uh, strong strong club players but also right down to uh, not especially strong club players and the idea was to sort of compare how people thought about the position uh, and of the 40 uh, puzzles you mentioned it's also possible to calculate your own rating which has actually been quite a popular feature because um, I've had a lot of people said well knowing that I was going to get a rating out of it really uh, encouraged me to focus on the, on the puzzles in the book to try and do a good job solving them. Another feature of the book that was a bit unusual was Phil uh, asked after you've selected your move for uh, to give an assessment of the position and also to compare uh, well the assessment of the position with the objective assessment, but also to see how uh, different strengths of players assessed the situation. So I mean originally. I was going to be doing less of it, but in the end, uh, I did quite long write-ups to the puzzle solutions. Uh, that's quite a large percentage of the book. Um, 
as I said, I like to kind of try and have a lot of words, kind of instructional stuff. And there were some uh, specific tips, both from me and Phil, on each uh, position. Uh, there were actually a few more puzzles than the 40. The 40 were the main ones, and then there were some additional puzzles. So I think it was around 56 puzzles actually in the book in general. Um, so that's quite an unusual uh, aspect of the book. And there was also a big conclusion section with a lot of general advice from both of us written separately, where there aren't actually many variations at all, just a few diagrams to pick out certain points. Um, and it was quite interesting to see how players in particular groups still tended to go in sort of groups of 200 rating points. And you can see that some errors are particularly common to a, a kind of a class of player or a rating, rating of players, that there are some areas where particular weaknesses um, are uh, very common. And there are some positions which, you know, for grandmasters are very easy, but for players going down a level are uh, very difficult. Um, and quite interesting to see also how the assessment worked uh, and uh, how people can sort of assess position quite well. Uh, if you just show them a position, but when they start calculating a variation, then their assessment can uh, diverge very quickly. They see a move they like, and then their assessment shoots up without perhaps considering all the resources in the position, how the opponent might be able to respond. Uh, they can get a little bit carried away, which obviously would be something over the board, which could be quite problematic. So it's it's really quite it's quite an unusual book. I should perhaps also mention we also did an eye tracking chapter at the end, where we monitor people's eye movements when they're thinking about a position. Uh, so you would see which square they first zone in on, and again that was with a range of different strengths of players, and to see how a grandmaster looks at the position what they see in the first few seconds and you know a range of other players Keith Ark also did that in fact it was the other grandmaster on that particular experiment um so that was another slightly unusual thing that hasn't been seen very much there's actually quite a lot of good feedback on the book already um even at the Olympiad actually quite a lot of people mentioned it even quite strong players who've been through the book and quite liked it but I hope that it will be quite accessible um I was also on the uh, Petrol Chess podcast with Ben Johnson. I think he said that he thought it was down maybe for 1,500, 1,600 players. It could still be quite useful. And it was very much written uh, in a way that I hope will be accessible to a range of players. Uh, obviously, Phil is not a grand, yeah, he's a, a strong player, but not uh, you know, well aware of the, the problems of players down the rating scale. So... I hope that it, it will be interesting in that respect. So it's uh, it's uh, we've had quite a good feedback on it so far, so I'm pretty happy with how it's gone. Amazing. Well, I definitely uh, look forward to reading it soon. Um, I, 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 yeah, you know, I, I should receive it soon. Actually, got it got it on Amazon. So, um, but uh, you know, did definitely look forward to it and. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it, and as we said before, you know, continuous improvement is uh, is important, and uh, got to both both read and and, and play. So, um, Mickey, I, I really want to thank you for you know taking some time, uh, you know, to talk here. Uh, this truly was, uh, you know, a special episode for me. Uh, you know, having uh, you know truly used your games, uh, you know, a lot uh, in in the past. 
um, you know, interview uh, some great professionals uh, every week. But uh, you know, having read uh, your your autobiography, uh, you know, relatively early on, and uh, you know, going over some of your your games thanks to uh, Lombardi suggestion, uh, you know, this really was uh, you know a, a special episode for me to uh, record. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was great learning uh, and talking about a variety of subjects, you know, from your nickname, uh, you know, Mickey, to uh, you know, learning uh, a little bit more about your uh, development uh, as as a player, uh, your teams, uh, talking a little bit about chess cheating and some of the uh, current events, uh, talking about opening repertoire, uh, your recent uh, win at the, the World Senior uh, Team Championships, and of course, talking about uh, your new book, I uh, think like a super grandmaster, uh, which I definitely recommend uh, everyone checks out. Uh, of course, the link to the uh, book will be uh, in the show notes uh, as well. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add while you're on the podcast? No, just to thank you for having me and thank you for doing the podcast. I have listened to quite a few, as I, I mentioned. It was nice to hear from some American players in particular that I haven't uh, seen for a while. Um, so yeah, it's uh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, well, my my sincere pleasure, and uh, I do enjoy having players from uh, both sides of the ocean. <laughs> uh, you know, so uh, you know, including many of your your compatriots, uh, you know, other uh, you know chess uh, organizers, and uh, yeah, it's great to. Uh, I always enjoy it. You know, every week, uh, pretty much, I you know record a new new episode and. Uh, you know, thank you, uh, you know, very much for your time. Uh, lastly, uh, you know, is there a way people could, you know, reach reach you, you know, either, you know, via social media or uh, other platforms if people want to learn more about your book um, and other things you're doing? Yeah, I do have a, I do have a website online. Uh, people can contact me uh, through that. Uh, so uh, that might be uh, the best way to... Uh, contact me i think it's uh i just looked it up here myself michaeladamschess.co.uk uh, that was what be, i was going to say and then uh, in like, the show notes <laughs> as well <laughs> <laughs> i didn't want to give the wrong address to my own website so yeah if, uh, if people want to leave messages uh there and there is there is more details about the uh, book if anyone's interested in that uh on my website so uh, and links to Quality Chess if uh, who are the publishers, if, if anyone wants to uh, go and find the uh, book there. So uh, that's that would be, uh, and that would be fine mm-hmm. if anyone does want to have a look at my website. There's, I haven't actually done much work on it for a while, but there are a lot of historical blogs as well if anyone's interested. Amazing. Well, of course, both your website uh, and uh, the, the book uh, link will be uh, in the show notes as well. And uh, yes, Michael, thank you so much for, you know, taking some time and look forward to uh, seeing you uh, in person one day. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Take care.